0: midtown detroit studios of wdet this is detroit today incarceration is a central issue in cities like detroit both in terms of who is sent to prison and just as important what happens when people return from prison to the community. University of Chicago Professor Ruben Miller has been researching the ways in which imprisonment alters lives permanently for a really long time. Now he's a MacArthur Genius Award winner, and he'll join us to discuss his work and his outlook. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. To Detroit today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad that you've decided to join us. We talk all the time about incarceration and the effect it has on cities like Detroit here on Detroit today, and we want to talk more about it today. But I really want to start with a point of reference, I'll call it, that I think. Eludes a lot of people who maybe don't live in the communities that many of us do live in in Detroit. Imagine the idea that someone in your life, maybe a family member or a friend, is suddenly taken away from you and your family and your community, shipped away to a place that it's pretty hard for you to get to where you're not particularly welcome, and where maybe over many years or even decades, you become really estranged from that person. Maybe you exchange letters, maybe you can squeeze in a few phone calls, but essentially that person is gone from your life. And then imagine that one day that person reappears gets out of prison, and comes back to the community where you live. How do you start over? How do you rewelcome that person to the community? How do you help that person rebuild their lives? This is not some remote fantasy for so many people in the city of Detroit. It is reality for the majority of us here. And that's because this statistic has been true for some time. One of every three African-American males in the city of Detroit has been to prison. One in three. A third of the population. And if you think of the connections to that third of the population, that reaches just about everybody. That's somebody's brother, somebody's cousin, somebody's neighbor, somebody's father. A few years ago, University of Chicago professor Ruben Miller documented some of these stories in his book, Halfway Home. And that text was filled with statistics and poetic stanzas about the pain we inflict on people, not just during incarceration, but long after. Miller drew on his time as a volunteer chaplain at Chicago's Cook County Jail and his experiences with the incarceration of his brother to understand the interior lives of people, particularly black men, who've had their lives cratered by the seemingly never-ending punishments that exist beyond the walls of prison and jail. He suggests that incarceration continues to exist outside of a prison's four walls. Miller is a sociologist, a criminologist, and social worker at UC, and we had him on our program last year to discuss his book, Halfway Home. Well, that book gained so much praise that he recently won. MacArthur Genius Award. He has explored what life looks like for returning citizens from prison and is now studying people whose society deems violent, among other things. He's back with us today to talk more about what inspired his work, the ways he thinks the criminal justice system is shifting, and what he's working on now. Professor Ruben Miller, welcome back to Detroit Today.
1: Thanks so much for having me back. It's such a great pleasure to be with you again.
0: Yes, and uh, right up front, I need to say congratulations, congratulations on this <laughs> MacArthur Award. Uh, every time I know someone who wins one of these, I'm just blown away. I'm like, that is such a great honor to have.
1: <laughs> it's, it's wild, and I'm grateful. And I'm, mostly, I'm grateful because of um, the work and what I think it means for um, the kinds of people that, for example, you've chosen to spotlight. I mean, your, your lead-in was beautiful as it, as it was last year, as it always is when you talk about these kinds of things. And so I think the people that we care about, the people we that, that, that are in our families, the people we know, our neighbors, especially in cities like Detroit, Chicago, L.A., all throughout the country, but also in rural places, too. I mean, you know, I appreciate the spotlight on the lives of people that we've decided to throw away people that we've learned to be afraid of. And mm-hmm. it, it just, it just means the world.
0: Yeah. So, so I want to start with the idea that I was working with there in the open that for those of us who live in cities like Detroit, those of us who are part of uh, you know, the African-American or uh, Latino communities or, or, or other marginalized communities in, in this country, this is not a, a dry statistical issue or not just a dry statistical issue. This is about our lives and it is about okay. the ways in which our communities are shaped and damaged by, uh, you know, the drive to put, uh, to put people in prison. I want to start with you talking about how that connects to you not just as uh, a researcher who's won a macarthur but 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 somebody who is part of one of these communities
1: absolutely i appreciate this question so much i mean so the the you you laid out the statistics you know 1 in 3 uh black folks in detroit for sure um will spend some time in a jail or prison that's also a national statistic that mirrors national trends um we know that you know, one in three black Americans um, will spend some time in jail or prison. We know that 60% of black boys who drop out of high school are going to spend time in jail or prison. We know that 30% of boys who, who do graduate, black boys specifically, um, whether they graduate or not, they do graduate, are going to spend some time in jail or prison. It's it's, it's haunting, you know, for, especially for poor black people in this country. And, and, and so, you know, without question this has deeply impacted my own life i mean i grew up poor and black uh in chicago after 1972 so specifically i'm about 40 i'm 46 years old i was born in 76 i mean so th- what we might call the mass incarceration generation really begins in about 1966 mm-hmm. so 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 and the reason for that is we're looking at people of working age and so 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 dur- during during 1972 specifically This is the year that we arrest more people, and we do it each year in this country and in every city across this country just about uh, than we did the year before, and we do that for 27 straight years. And so folks who are working age during this period, after this period, are considered part of the mass incarceration generation. So I'm a part of that generation. This is especially the case if you're born poor and black, as I was. I was born on the south side of Chicago. My grandmother raised us. We were also um, you know, out of foster care. And so that's you know, a part of my story. I'm, I'm, I'm from a group of people who are most likely to be touched by the criminal justice system. And so, you know, I started this work as a volunteer chaplain because I was interested in, in doing something, you know, morally and ethically. It was a part of my religious tradition to, 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 to care for the vulnerable, in this case, to care for the prisoners. Um, and so I decided to visit. And when I got there, I started seeing my neighbors. You know, my neighbors would show up at, at my chapel services. Uh, folks who I grew up with. When I go home, even if it wasn't my neighbors, I see brothers and sisters who are on the inside at the store. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so it would be people who I grew up with, like neighbors that I knew for many years that would show up at my services. It would be my neighbors uh, when, I, when, I, when I came home, when I, you know, I moved away from the neighborhood I grew up in. Uh, and then eventually I started studying mass incarceration. I went to social work school because I wanted to be a better chaplain. My interest changed, and I decided to study it as a sociologist, and, and while I'm doing my work, my brother's arrested and incarcerated. And I, too, of course, have been arrested. I'd never done time, but I've been arrested uh, because almost all of us will be. The literature tells us that 49 percent of black boys will be arrested before they turn the age of 23 in this country. Mm. And so that's my generation. That's my people. Uh, you know, they, they live in neighborhoods like my neighborhood. Uh Detroit, like Chicago. There's a handful of neighborhoods from which most inmates, uh most people who are sent to prison uh in the state of Michigan are drawn from. In Chicago there's about seven neighborhoods and Detroit somewhere around the same, seven or eight neighborhoods from which something like half of all the people that are locked away in a Michigan prison are often drawn from. And so and so so that that's my experience. I know it from my flesh, not just academically. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And and so much of your work has really focused on what happens after people are yeah. uh, sent to prison and after after they come home and and look that's the vast majority of people who go to prison uh, you know it, it's a minority of people who are sent away for life uh, sure. and, and stay there that time um, you you write about what you call in halfway home a supervised society. Uh, and I love that. I love that phrase. Um, but but you're, what you're talking about is life after incarceration, the idea that you never really are released from the criminal justice system once, once you're part of it.
1: That's absolutely right. Once accused of a crime, this is when the state, you know, the, the, the government, as it were, begins to marshal resources in your direction but it's not the resources we often need you know there's this discussion in the political arena every year about waste fraud and abuse about too much government resources being marshaled toward people like us people who are born poor people from minoritized communities people who are thrown away people who are disregarded um but but the resources that we need, resources for education, resources for medical care, those aren't the resources that are marshaled in our direction. What's, re- what's marshaled toward us are, 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 are resources uh, for punishment, punitive resources, the police. Uh, 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 incarceration, you know, this is the, the, what we call million dollar blocks where, where so many people have been arrested in a given neighborhood that, 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 that a square block may have spent over a million, will have spent over a million dollars in that square block for issues related to arrest and incarceration. Well, that's one part of it. That's, that's the opening. That's, that's, that's the spigot. That's getting you into the jail or the prison. We know that there's are something like two million people in its height there were 2.4 million people who were held in an american jail or prison and that number's fluctuated but it stayed around 2 million since since the 1990s um but 95 percent of the folks who are arrested come home this is the point that you raised earlier the vast majority of people come home most people don't stay in prison forever mm-hmm. which is good you know we want people to come home uh, but but it's something to, to to reckon with while there are 2 million people who are held in a cage on any given day That 19 million people who have a felony record, 19 million people who live in community with a felony record is 10 times the size of the American jail or prison census. But it's a number we don't pay enough attention to. And what happens when they come home? Well, being marked by the criminal justice system, having that felony record means that there are laws, policies, and administrative sanctions that target them and only them. There's something called the National Inventory of the Collateral Consequences of a Criminal Conviction. It was first curated by the American Bar Association. And what they did was they counted across each state the numbers of laws, policies, and sanctions that prevent people with criminal records from accessing employment or participating in civic life, from accessing housing, from spending time with their families, from having licenses, from property rights, just any manner of what we might call full participation in a democratic society, the kinds of things that constrain that. And when they counted across the country, they counted 44,000, well over 44,000 that target people with criminal records. 19,000 laws, policies, and sanctions prevent people with records from getting jobs. Mm. 1,000 prevent them from getting housing. 4,000 prevent their civic participation, so it makes it harder for people with records uh, to to change the law and policy regimes that that we that that. that that most in ways that most people find meaningful. Their civic participation is constrained, whether or not they can sit on a, a jury, which boards they can sit on. Of course, whether or not they can vote. Now, you can vote in Michigan, you can vote in Illinois, but there are a handful of states where you can't vote, you know, these kinds of things. So this, this legal apparatus that targets people with records and only people with records makes it almost impossible for people to make it on their own. So folks are, are rendered uh, to a condition where they need the help of others, where they're always being monitored and managed, where one slip-up could land them back in the jail or prison, and that is the supervised society uh, that, that that I write about. Yeah. Just to just to keep this local, in the state of Michigan, there are over six hundred of these laws, policies, and sanctions. There were six hundred eighty nine when I wrote uh, the book that that that, that preclude people um, with records from 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 moving in the world in ways that most people might find meaningful. This is a part of the supervised society.
0: Yeah, yeah. and and that sort of official uh, treatment of, uh, of returning citizens has this incredible, I think, cultural and emotional effect as well on our 100%. communities. If you're somebody who is marked that way, if you're somebody whose who's movement in, in, in our society is restricted, uh, that has an effect not just on you, it, it affects everybody around you. Families in particular, I feel like, are just uh, turned upside down by, by the return of someone from prison, in large part because of some of these these laws.
1: That's such a great point. I mean, I want to bring this home with an example of a person um, who I call Jimmy in the book and, and, and tell you just a little bit about him. So I met Jimmy he was getting out of in a place called the Detroit Reentry Center, which was which was on Mound Road. There was mm-hmm. no prison that got converted, you know, just, and so and so, you know, I met Jimmy there and I followed Jimmy for for, for about a couple of years and I got a chance to meet Jimmy and his mother and Jimmy was struggling. I mean Jimmy had an addiction that he was kicking. He was in substance abuse treatment. Jimmy had untreated um, bipolar disorder, stayed in prison for eight years without access to the medical treatment that he needed, but he got that treatment. He was on the right track. He was trying to find work. He was trying to find a job, this kind of thing. And so, uh, uh, but he had no place to stay. He had no place to stay. A, a guy who used to sell drugs turned his life around and, you know, became a real estate developer and let this guy who I call Jimmy, you know, sleep in buildings that he was rehabbing, but he didn't really have a stable unit. And his mother, who is lovely, who was just a wonderful woman, you know, kind and cares for um, Jimmy and, and his siblings, would often let him stay with her when he would come home from doing bits, you know, in jail or prison or something like that. And now that he really turned his life around, you know, my presumption was that he would go to live with his mother. And so I asked him, you know, Jimmy you know, how's your mom, and, and, you know, did you did you decide to go stay with her? Because when I had last seen him, he was in these cold, damp <laughs> houses that were about to be rehabbed. This is no way to live, and it's a Detroit winter at this time. And he told me that he stayed away from his mother, and I asked him why. He said, well, the last time I was there, her landlord started asking questions. Mm. The landlord told the mother that he knew that Jimmy was staying there, and that if she continued to let him stay there, that she, he would be forced to evict her. The landlord was going to evict Jimmy's mother because Jimmy was sleeping on the couch. So Jimmy stayed away from the one person who unconditionally loved him and who would help him because if he came around, he knew that she would help him and he knew that the stakes would be that she would be displaced. Now, this is the result of housing policy. This is the thousand laws and policies that prevent people with records from accessing housing. This is the 1988 drug abuse the drug abuse act of 1988 um which which required uh people in public housing to be uh, to, 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 to uh, public housing administrators administrators to evict people who had a criminal record yep. this is the result of the 1996 state of the union address uh from from president bill clinton the so-called um uh one strike rule where he said we need to take the crime fight to housing <laughs> so 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 what this did was it made it so that a grandmother could be evicted for the crime of letting her grandson sleep on the couch that that's where we are today
0: yeah yeah okay we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back we're gonna continue this really great conversation with Reuben Miller about uh, incarceration and post-incarceration also want to get going with you, the listeners, on the phones and on social. Give us a call. Let us know about your experience with uh, the carceral state here in Detroit or in Michigan. Is there someone in your family who has been in prison and you had to figure out how to help them out when they got home? Uh, what does your community look like as a result of the number of people who are sent away and locked up? 313-577-1019 is the number on the phone. That's 313 313- 577 Five seven seven one zero one nine. 1019 you can also go to twitter and hashtag detroit today we'll work you into the conversation we'll be right back with more detroit today
1: bringing you news that matters
0: stories that impact your life
1: music from the motor city and around the world This is
0: 1019 WDET, Detroit's
1: NPR station.
0: This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've joined us today. Our guest today is Professor Ruben Miller. He is a sociologist, a criminologist, and social worker at the University of of Chicago. He recently won a MacArthur Genius Award. He has been exploring uh, many subjects around the question of incarceration in our country, uh, but in particular has been looking at what life looks like for returning citizens from prison. Uh, we want to hear from you as well during this conversation. Three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number here on the phones. Uh, I know how much this is a part of uh, so many people's lives here in the city of Detroit and in the state of Michigan. We want to hear how this affects you. Uh, is there someone in your family who has been incarcerated? Uh, have you been incarcerated and had to come home and figure out how to rebuild your life, uh, give us a call and let us know about that. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, you can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we'll work into the conversation. Uh, Ruben, I want to start with a, a question we, we got on Twitter, and I think it's an important one. Um, uh, Wombat says, the real question we should be asking is why are 49 percent of young black men committing crimes to get arrested? Why is criminality so prevalent? Uh, that, that's something – I hear from people all the time when we sure. talk about this, uh people wouldn't go to prison if they weren't committing crimes is another way uh to put that. I want to give you a chance to to address that point of view and, and tell me why we shouldn't be focusing on that.
1: Yeah, so so I want to address that in two ways. So so uh forty nine percent of black boys will be arrested before they turn the age of twenty three, which it raised questions I think not just about the, the character of those boys, but the fact that half of any group is being arrested should raise questions for us about how we arrest, what for, why, and how often. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to couple that with another statistic. While 49% of black boys will be arrested before they turn 23, 38% of white boys will be arrested in this country before they turn the age of 23 years old
0: so this isn't just a black thing it's not that much less right it's not
1: just, right it's not that much less it's not just a black thing it raises questions about the use of police you know the the guys who i talked to the were first arrested at the age of 10 11 12 years old and the arrests will begin you know with 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 just Uh, It would begin with conversations with, with boys who were doing things like playing. Maybe they were on their corners. Maybe they were on their blocks, but they were viewed as out of place and so the police would start questioning them that would turn into more aggressive contact between those boys and the police which turns into a game when we see the police we might run so there are there are some interesting cultural aspects to think about what some of which might be how people respond to over policing in their neighborhood Mm -hmm. half of any group being arrested should raise questions about why they're being arrested not just what they did that's part one uh part two um uh, uh uh and then how does one respond how does one respond to the fact that they are so policed we had police officers in our schools back in the, the, the 1980s and yep. 90s school resource officers aren't new sure things and so, and so deploying the police to address all manner of 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 social problems is not a good answer there's one uh, tool in the toolkit, which is to arrest, to incarcerate. But, 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 but often people are being arrested for doing things that kids do all the time, playing, maybe even getting into a playground fight or something like that. And these things escalate over time so that by the time you get in actual trouble for doing something actually wrong, you've got this long rap sheet that gets you thrown away forever. And I don't, I don't know that this is the, the, the right move.
0: So so I also want to want to drill down on the uh, the assumptions and the bias that accompany this conversation all the time about black people and black culture this idea that somehow there is uh, you know, criminality uh, baked in to the way we're raised or the that's communities right. that we live in. Uh, and and that helps fuel and I'm not I'm certainly not accusing uh, this this listener on Twitter of of holding those biases, but but very often when we talk about that question, that's what drives the conversation. It is this uh, assumption that there's something wrong. Of black right. people, that leads us to uh, to over incarceration.
1: That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. It, 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 and, and what 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 a strange presumption, you know? When we think about uh, the 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 stats, if, if we if we look at the stats, so on the one hand, you can say, well, disparity doesn't prove, for example, intent, but 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 some but some disparities do. So let's look at the, the, the likelihood of arrest. Black folks are twice as likely to be arrested than white folks. But, but, we, but we just showed that when you look over time, that, that, that white folks get arrested at approaching at a great number, up, which suggests that there's this sort of over-incarceration. But, the, but the, other, the other things to consider, the fact that black folks are not only five times more likely to be incarcerated, so we're only twice as likely to be arrested, but we're five times more likely to be incarcerated, that we do more time and that we do it in harsher under harsher conditions if the statistics tell us and this is when we've committed the same crime. Mm-hmm. So, so, so when you control for crime, when you control for criminal history, black folks are still five times more likely to be incarcerated, do longer sentences, 20% longer sentences on average uh, at the federal level, 10% longer on average at the state level. And then my, my colleague, uh, Finn Bell, finds that when you look in, 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 in the kinds of housing conditions that they have, that black folks are held in more secure housing. So the presumption of criminality shows up. The last thing I'll say about this is that we see this not only in uh, the criminal justice system, we see this across systems. If you look in schools, for example, yeah. there have been studies that show that black folks, when you control for things like behavior, are more likely to be suspended, are more likely to be expelled from school. There was one haunting study where, 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 pre, where preschool children were, were, were put in front of teachers and they tracked their eye movements, and the teachers were told to look for deviant behavior, and there was a black boy and a white boy and a black girl and a white girl, and, teach, and the teachers would look, and, 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 and the, the study tracked their eye movement. And what they found was that the teachers were always looking toward the black mm-hmm. children mm-hmm. for deviant behavior when primed. The problem with the study and the reason for the study, not the problem, but the reason for the study, there was no deviant behavior being displayed on the videos that the teachers were watching. They were just told to look for it. And when told, they found black people doing it. Mm-hmm. We have to deal with racism in this country, absolutely, in other words. Absolutely.
0: Uh, Wombat, I uh, really appreciate the comment there on Twitter, and you're listening to the show. Uh, let's go to the phones here. Uh, we'll start today with Rowan in Metro Detroit. Rowan, welcome to the show.
2: Hi. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. Thanks for calling.
2: Um, so I want to talk about—I'm a, I'm a law student at Wayne State, and um, they have this really awesome program uh, that I want to get into— uh, called holistic defense and essentially the idea is that um, as a lawyer you're not only you know the the criminal record is only a part of this person's um, legal struggle essentially or legal or they need legal support and they you know so you, you help them obviously with their defense in the criminal system but also you know with housing or with getting benefits or getting employment and you know treat it well holistically um, and I wanted to get uh, the guest's opinion on that and if, you know, if that looks like part of the solution and if it does, you know, how it would affect um, the overall sure. situation.
0: Yeah. Rowan, I really appreciate uh, you calling and uh, interjecting that and good luck in in law school. Uh, uh, Reuben Miller, what, what's the answer to his question?
1: It's a fantastic step. I mean, it's, it, is, it, is, it, is, it is one really wonderful tool. Uh, in the toolkit, holistic defense not only shows better outcomes um, for, for for clients in in, in in the ways that the case is resolved. In other words, the case resolves in better ways for the client. Uh, you know, but but the, but the literature also tells us that that the client has better outcomes later. And so when you when you stabilize people, and this is this is one of the places where I find hope, both in um, the you know folks who are sort of outside, well-meaning helpers, attorneys. Uh, uh, you know, civic leaders who aren't formally incarcerated themselves, uh, who who are trying to do good by thinking about the whole picture. And it's important to think about the whole picture because 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 you know this isn't really just a criminological problem. This is the way we treat people across systems, as, as we talked about. Um, and, so, and so, the outcomes are better, and it's wonderful. But the other place that I find hope also so holistic defense is wonderful. Let me say that, and and the literature supports it. Um, but I also find great hope in formally incarcerated activists who are pushing for. Um, not only better legal representation, but, but f- full inclusion in the political economy and culture. We mm-hmm. see this in um, a, 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 a move uh, a toward uh, holistic d- defense and, and also a kind of community-inspired defense um uh uh the, the, the formerly incarcerated people are, are leading that comes out of something called uh, sort of the barefoot lawyer movement um overseas it's, it, it's 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 quite wonderful um and also just the move of formerly incarcerated people in Detroit organizations like Nation Outside among others uh that that, that are working to, for full inclusion of people with criminal records uh in the political economy and culture and in the leadership of of, of the cities towns and and and, and 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 suburbs uh where they live
0: yeah, yeah. Um, I, I want to I go back to something you said a little earlier, Ruben, that I think uh, dovetails with what Rowan is talking about. You, you mentioned that there were 689 laws here in Michigan uh, that restricted the lives of uh, people who are coming out of prison when you wrote your book, and that okay. there are only 600 now, which means that... Uh, 89 of those laws have gone away in some way. And that and the, this idea of reform, of changing the system, is actually getting a little traction. Um, and, and it is getting, actually, I would say, a fair amount of traction here in Michigan. But I want to have you talk some about changes uh, that you see, uh, not just here mm-hmm. in Michigan, but around the country, that that are encouraging about the way that, you know, people are People are changing the way they think about this, and and Rowan's question reminds me of uh, the other ways in which uh, we're going in a different direction.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's really quite wonderful to see. I mean, to give an example that comes straight out of Michigan, I should also be just a little bit careful. There are fewer than 689 right now, but I'm not sure that they're they're over 600. I'm not sure the, the exact number. Okay. Um, but, okay, but but there but there has but there has been a reduction, um, and and that has been. Initiated by formerly incarcerated activists leading the way, um, and, and, and there are a number of, of, of activists across the state of Michigan that are doing wonderful things. You know, the, the, the organization that I'll highlight right now is one called Nation Outside, um, which is which is. Uh, basically, a, a, a network of formerly incarcerated leaders who are pushing for law and policy change uh, in the different areas of the state that they work in. The reason why I'm highlighting them is because it's kind of a, a collaborative, large organization of organizations. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and so, and so uh, among the things that. Uh, leaders, uh, former incarcerated leaders throughout the state of Michigan have been able to push forward are a really um, nation-leading uh, clean slate reforms. And clean slate happens, you know, it's, it's basically um, the, abail- the, the ability to expunge one's record and what folks have been able to do in Michigan is they've been able to reduce the length of time it takes before one's eligible for an expungement. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to give too much civics, I'm going to get it wrong, but <laughs> let's say it was seven years, they reduced it to something like six or five or four or something like that, um, and then also expanded the, the kinds of crimes that one has committed that, that allow for that to happen. So, so, so we, see, we see that leadership there. Uh, w- there's also a realization across the country that we have to reckon with this problem you know i think largely because we've come to realize in a deeper way this isn't just a black problem right like it's it's interesting you know donald uh, uh president trump when when trump was president he said he gave criminal justice reform to the blacks i remember that it was it was so insulting <laughs> right like, like like that's what he did for the blacks right it's criminal justice reform but 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 criminal justice reform isn't for the blacks. Right. right? Like what you do to my children, right? Like like you do to your own. So I mentioned that thirty eight percent of white boys will be arrested. Thirty-eight mm-hmm. percent of the national prison system is is white. Uh you know, one in two Americans has a loved one who's done time. And as a result, we see reforms all not just because of that, but because of the the, 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 the dogged um uh persistence of, 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 of organizers and activists, many of whom are formerly incarcerated across the country pushing. We see things like uh, fair housing laws and ordinances passing in different districts across the country. So in cities like Ypsilanti and cities like Ann Arbor and other places, but also in Cook County at, at the county level, which 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 is where I live. And then HUD is now thinking about what does it mean to allow for people with criminal records to stay in things like public housing. So mm-hmm. and so we see we see. Uh, reform uh, both in, in, in sort of law and policy and ordinance. We see it in employment, you know, the employers like American Family Insurance that are trying to think about what does it mean to, and I'm naming them as, as one example, but many, that they're thinking about what it means to include people uh, with records in, in, in their in, in their uh, employment endeavors. There's a wonderful uh, TED Talk by Naira Jordan uh, that talks about their efforts there. We, we see it all across the country largely because this is a this is a giant problem it is an american problem and we can't we can't have a more just uh union you know a more perfect union if we don't address it
0: yeah yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation With Ruben Miller We'll also continue to hear from you On the phones and on social Tim in Detroit, Cheryl in Ontario Bill in Detroit, will get to you next If you want to join them 313-577-1019 Is the number here You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us And we'll work you into the conversation Stay where you are, we'll be right back With more Detroit Today Today on 101.9 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is Ruben Miller, sociologist and criminologist and social worker, At the University of Chicago, he has been exploring life uh, as it unfolds for people who are incarcerated and come home. Uh, He is a recent recipient of the MacArthur Genius Award as well. We're talking about uh, the effect that incarceration has on so many people uh, here in Detroit and in Michigan and around the country and uh, how we change Uh, the ways that that affects uh, us and our communities. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones to join the conversation. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Let's go next to Tim from Detroit. Tim, what's on your mind? Hi, um, you know, like so
2: much in America, I think this is driven by money. Who, who profits? Who has a vested interest in keeping black people in jail?
0: Mm. Great question, Tim. Uh, there, is, there is always uh, in a capitalist society, there is always a profit motive uh, somewhere. Reuben Miller, what's the answer?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's so many people that profit from incarceration. I mean when, when my brother was locked away in a Michigan penitentiary, by the way, um, it cost me six dollars and fifty five cents. Uh, to make a phone call, to call him, to speak to him for 15 minutes. That was after a series of reforms that drove the price down. You know, it would cost me up to $3 to send him an email because another telecommunication service, a different one uh, than the one that handled the phone calls, handled emails. And emails were faster, of course, than snail mail, which had to be you know checked, and it took forever to get a note to him. I mean, it would cost me $3 because a stamp was 20 cents uh, 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 plus 20 cents a page for, for an image if I wanted to attach one. A postcard was another $1.50 to $2 that they advertised, by the way, when I logged on to the service to send him the note in the first place if it was Christmas. By the way, the fees that happened in commissary, everything in the commissary is about twice what it costs in the real world. Boots. That you give for thirty dollars at Marshalls, for example, are ninety to one hundred fifty dollars on the inside. You know, so 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 they're, they're, they're all sorts of ancillary service providers uh, that that benefit from the people who provide the food uh, to the people who who you know control these telecommunication services. And then, of course, there's state fines and fees. Even though states operated a deficit, it cost states money. Uh, to, to 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 lock away people. Then there are the private prisons, which represent about between seven and nine percent. You know, I think it's in any given year the number of jails and pr- uh, the number of prisons across the country. The place where we see lots of privatization is in immigrant detention. Most mm-hmm. of those are those centers are are privatized but but we see we see lots of profit but there's another profit there's a political profit the the idea that one might be tough on crime still benefits folks in chicago we're having local elections right now and every mayoral candidate is raising the so-called crime wave that happened in 2020 uh as 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 the reason as a rationale they're running chicagoans are sick of crime and i'm sure uh you hear that in cities like detroit too we're sick of crime, there's this crime wave. This idea of being tough on crime uh, pays political dividends, and it has for the last 40 years.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, thanks so much for the call and uh, and the question. Let's go to Cheryl in uh, Ontario. Welcome to the show.
2: Yeah, it's Cheryl Van Stephen, good
0: morning. Hi, how are you? Good. Ruben, congratulations on being
2: recognized for the awareness that you're bringing to us today on opening that key of making change. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's a wonderful award. And my question for you today and the listeners is what one step can we make as communities, individual communities in our nation, what one step can be made to uproot these ailments? Like where
0: it's a great. It's a great question. Like uh, you know, I think for a lot of people, uh, the, the the feeling of helplessness is is really powerful around this issue. That this is this happening to you or to your family or to someone in your community, and that doesn't feel like there's very much you can do about it. Ruben, what what should people think about being able to do? What's what's the lever they can pull?
1: Well, the, the, I want to I want to do two. There are two opportunities to address it that are absolutely low hanging fruit. The first and the easiest thing to do is to connect with organizations that do the work where you live and the reason why I say this is probably, and it's probably the most important and it's low hanging fruit because they'll have each of the the organizations will have a list of things that you could get involved with uh, at the local level. And it'll be the most impactful because I should say, you know, we don't have one criminal justice system. We have 3,000 because there's 3,000 or so localities Mm -hmm. and and there's 3,000 or so counties and there's 3,000 or so districts um, with with its own sort of legal apparatus. On the one hand, it's overwhelming, but on the other, because it's local, your impact at the local level is magnified. It's much easier to address a local problem than it is a national one. So that, that, that's part one. Connect with organizations. They're great national organizations. I sit on the board, for example, of an organization called Just Leadership USA. Um, that, 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 that does uh, work to build the capacity of formerly incarcerated leaders throughout the country. Mm-hmm. But there are other organizations, like all of us and none, that do very similar things. And they all have agenda items at the national level and also at the local level. And then, of course, their local organizations are named one, um, you know, a, a nation outside, for example, um, in, in Michigan. When you connect with these places, they'll tell you. The second thing is we can pay careful attention to who we elect not just at the at the at the you know at, at, for this at the federal level, but at the local level, local elections really do matter. Our mayors, the folks who run our you know our alder people, our wards, the, you know the, the, our superintendents, uh, especially uh, folks who the judges and the DAs, the, these these people uh, you know do enormous uh, do do enormous things. And lastly, what I'd like for you, the, the listeners to do is exert influence wherever they can. So in your places of employment, in your houses of worship, uh, thinking about ways with the leadership there to include people with criminal records, because they've been largely excluded from the political economy and culture, mm-hmm. really does make a difference. I want to point uh, folks to, to Naira Jordan, and 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 and, uh, uh, and 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 her last name is Barnett. Um, uh, the, the, these two TED Talks of the criminal justice system and on ways that employers can— can, can support uh, formerly incarcerated people um, that, 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 that are on TED that were part of a uh, salon on the criminal justice system uh, that, that talk about their efforts to do that. Anyway, wherever you have influence, that's where you exert it. That's right. That's right.
0: Act where you have agency. That's uh, one of the things Absolutely. I always kind of counsel. Let's let's go back to the phones here. Bill in Detroit. Bill, what's on your mind? Are you there, Bill?
2: Yes, I'm here, Stephen. Good morning. Yeah, go ahead. Yes. Good morning, Mr. Miller. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, morning. I was calling to uh, give a comment about an experience I had over 30-plus years ago. Uh, I was arrested um, in another state, and um, what was called a no-paper was assigned to me, which is when they're investigating it, but it's not an official uh, arrest. Hmm. I was not convicted. I have no convictions. I have a clean criminal record, but I've attempted to cross over to Canada within those, you know, in the past 10 years, and been denied. Um, the one time I tried to go over there, I was with, uh, it was me and another African-American guy and two Caucasian women. The uh, Border Patrol agent told us that we don't want your kind over here, because mm. from our database, we can't tell whether you've been convicted or not. You have to get FBI mm. clearance, get fingerprinted, and oh cleared goodness. to come over. If you try to come over again, you'll be arrested for failure to follow customs regulations, and we were sent back. I was told they can do whatever they want. It's their country. But this is just an example because it's what's called a no paper. It means mm-hmm. that it's, it's not technically an arrest record. Right. It's mm-hmm. on your record mm-hmm. and it limits you. You know, and this is just mm-hmm. to me an example of how they, you know, whether you're guilty or not, you're limited. Mm-hmm. And also how other countries, some other countries perceive you based on your skin color and, and what sure. you... You know, just the little information they have. You're presumed guilty, mm-hmm. even though you're innocent.
0: So, 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 Bill, before I get back to Ruben, I, I want to know more about what they told you you were supposed to do about this. Like, they, they made a suggestion about fixing it. But what was it?
2: Well, it, you have to pay out of pocket to get fingerprinted, and you have to send it to the state that you reside in to get clearance, to show that you weren't convicted. Wow. And to me, like, you know, why should— it cost me for something that I have no guilt in, you know, sure. like I, I mm-hmm. was never, you know, found, you know, whatever the charge was, it was dropped and I was a free man. You know, so I don't I it's just more, you know, parts of the system that I feel uh, limit people in their ability to do commerce or just experience things in other countries.
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah. Based, you Bill, know. I'm I'm really sorry that happened. And I'm sorry that you continue to have to deal with something that that happened 20 20- Years ago, and that didn't result in any uh, actual conviction about you. But Reuben, I think this is a great example for people to hear because it demonstrates the reach of the tentacles of of all of this stuff into people's lives.
1: Without question, without I'm so, I'm so sorry that 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 the caller went through that awful bill, and um, yeah, and it, it, it it's, it's awful to hear, and also unsurprising because. He has similar experiences for people who, for example, are um, have pre-trial status. So let's say you've been arrested, but the case hasn't yet been resolved. Um, this is most people who who go to a jail, even if you bond out, even if you're in a in a in a in a city or a county that doesn't have bond. You know, you're, you're released pending your court date. When the court date, you know, while the court date is pending, you're subject to all manner of restrictions. It's like you're living on probation or parole, and, and you haven't been convicted of anything just yet. And this also happens with things like arrest records, with things like misdemeanor records, misdemeanors. So, So things you got arrested for that were small things, you know, I don't know, public intoxication, loitering, something like that. These things have effects, on on employment because there you can you know employers can access these things and employers ultimately make make decisions about how and, and, and when they hire the criminal justice system is is just far too big you know it kind of doesn't matter what your political philosophy is it kind of doesn't matter um, what political party you belong to none of us believe that the level of regulation the level of reach of of, of government should be this far into anyone's life. The, you know, one should be able to travel freely. One should be able to rent a home. One should be able to spend time with their with, with their families. You know, it, it kind of doesn't matter um, what one's political persuasion is. I think most people would agree that, that the nature and the reach of the criminal justice system is just too big, it extends too far, and it does too much damage, even for people um, who haven't done much, even for people who haven't done anything at
0: all. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've got about a minute left, Ruben, but I do want to get to this idea you have about radical hospitality, another really great Mm -hmm. phrase in terms of the way that we embrace people when they come out of prison.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it it comes from, um, you know, sort of a logical tradition. The idea is to embrace and 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 you know I I, I encountered this in real time uh, you know, with with a dear friend Ronald, my friend Ronald Simpson Bay who was on the program with me mm-hmm. when, when I came on last year and you know he was wrongfully convicted he has 27 years on a wrongful conviction and, and 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 he gets himself out of prison after this long hard fight while he's on the inside um, you know his his, his 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 he has a son who's murdered. Um, by, by a 14 year old. And, and Ronald doesn't embrace the 14 year old, but Ronald advocates for the 14 year old. The 14 year old isn't tried as is an adult because this was the trend in in Michigan prisons. And when I asked Ronald why he did it, he said, because it was the right thing to do. Mm. And, and it occurred to me at the moment. You know, it, it wasn't an act. I mean, maybe Ronald loved him. Maybe Ronald's got a giant heart or something like that. But, but, but the right thing to do is really compelling to me. You know, it, 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 hospi- radical hospitality, what, he's, what he showed me through his action, um, is, is allowing yourself to be vulnerable, allowing people in who may make a mistake. You know, this, this isn't, this isn't you know, easy to do, and I understand it's not easy, but, 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 but the idea is that people who even people who've caused harm, deserve a place in the world because they're human beings.
0: Yeah, yeah. Ruby yeah. Miller, again, congratulations on the MacArthur, and thanks so much for being here with us uh, on Detroit Today. We always have such great conversations. We will absolutely have you back in the future.
1: Uh, It was my great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's
0: going to do it for us today. Come back on Monday when we're going to talk about a new documentary on human trafficking and dive into how big a problem this is and isn't for people in America and around the world. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.